I'm Michael. And I'm Katie. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Okay! Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. Hey, how's it going? You know, I'm here. I'm awake. I think I'm, like, fighting some crud, you mm. know? Like, like my body's like, you haven't been sleeping well, and the first thing to go is your immune system, and you need to, you need to go to bed. Yeah, that sounds about right. I have had a couple of late nights this last week, and it has not done me any favors. I'm sure you have. It was so fun to see you last week, you though. Too. Was that only last week? Only last week. Feels so long ago. um, I said at a meeting, a regular meeting I have on Fridays, I was like, it feels like both two minutes has passed since we last met, but also a lifetime, everyone. (laughs) It's been a crazy (laughs) A lot of driving, a lot of a lot of stuff. Yeah, Um, definitely. But yeah, I don't know who you're doing. I looked on our episode list and I can usually sneak a peek to know if we're gonna accidentally do the same person or on purposely do the same person, but I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know what's happening. I think I'm first, though. Okay. So I, I think guess I'm first. we'll give it a Jen, shot. We'll see if Jen pops in. <laughs> Is that like true, Jen? The early morning recordings are always a little bit yeah, questionable. Because I think my last one was the Filipino Girl Scout, Josefa Escoda. Yes. I think that was the last one I did. Mm-hmm. And I... She's checking. I love that she can write on our little chat. Thanks, Jen. I know. Um, this modern technology is just so How's exciting sometimes. Besides slow crazy? I know. This is a... I like this format better than what we were doing before. Yeah. Um, no, my week's good. We've got the last week of the festival, so all of the sort of big folks are coming into town next weekend, and then... Oh, so the pressure's on? I mean, Sure. <laughs> our play is great in that like it's gonna happen and it's gonna be good regardless but we've had some good audiences this weekend and that's been nice this play is very dependent on like how people are responding to it that's good yeah i love that um did jen write back yet I yeah know, I, missed I think you're going first great hi <laughs> um oh there's some vivid imagery of wound care in this that I'll try not to be gross about, but I don't know if we have a warning for that. So anyway, just everyone be aware. There's some, there's some, uh, stuff that happens to this gal. Okay. Um, so I'm going to do Deborah Sampson. Do you know her? I, the name sounds really familiar, but mm. I mean, with the wound care thing, I'm mm-hmm. assuming some sort of medical professional. Oh yeah. No. Oh, okay. No, not at all. Um, but you'll get it from context in a second. She was born December 17th, 1760 in, uh, oh, I don't even have where. But her uh, family was um, of good pilgrim stock. She could she could, uh, she uh, could trace her family back to the Plymouth Rock settlers. So her family was pretty um, prestigious in the area. Okay. But... Uh, by the time she came around, her parents weren't doing as hot. 
So she's like one of per usual like seven kids in the family and that's a lot of mouths to feed. So her dad was like, I must go get my fortune and decided to get on a ship um, and set out for a sea voyage where he could make some money or I don't know, find some treasure. I don't know what they sold him, but it was not a good thing of goods because he never came back. So there's like two theories of like, did he go because he had seven children and it was overwhelming or did he genuinely like pass away at sea unclear at this point mama Sampson is a single mother with seven children in new england and is like um society hasn't set me up to succeed with this so i have to now give my children to various people in the village to have one of my kids i don't even get to stay together um so she has to pay put all her kids in different homes and um deborah is about 10 years old and kind of gets shuffled around. She goes to an aunt. The aunt passes away. She goes to this reverend uh, or a deacon, I think. And eventually she gets sold as an indentured servant as a child, which is just like horrific to think about. Great childcare solutions there. Yeah. Well, let's make a little money off this deal. So, um, so she goes to live with a farmer um, and is, indentured servitude is different than slavery because it's predominantly white people were indentured servants and there was like an end there was in theory an end to servitude because you you would sign up for like certain that's how a lot of people got here in the well I'm just talking out of my butt right now because I don't have this research in front of me but um a lot of uh, people would get to Americas by saying they would work for this family for 10 years and then after that they would move on and that would be your like servitude that is my understanding of indentured servitude that feels pretty on the nose um which is a whole thing of like why the slave trade kicked off because when you have a white i found this always fascinating because like my brain doesn't work this way but if you're an 18th century white uh jerk who wants to enslave people you look at whites uh irish usually irish or like um uh, downtrodden classes from uh, from uh, the UK and stuff, and then you look at the African continent and the biggest seller of like why would why would Europeans go to Africa to get slaves? It's such a long trip. That seems like such an expense. But when you have somebody who is of color that is in, uh, instantly distinguishable from like the owner, it just makes it easier to keep track of who's enslaved and who is not. Because with indentured mm-hmm. servants, you could kind of escape easier because you could blend. Isn't that mm-hmm. worked? I never thought about that until, like, way later learning about history. And I was like, that's so screwed up. Yeah, um, we'll just add it to the list of ridiculously yeah. fucked up things. And my brain wouldn't think about that. But, like, if you're totally, like, capitalist thinking at that time and you're like, how are we going to get, you know, we're losing money on these people, <laughs> these, these human lives. How are we going to keep this free labor going um anyway pay your people uh so where are we at deborah was uh, not she was a white person so this is indentured servitude and she's 10 so like what kind of labor is she gonna be doing but lo and behold she does really good at it she's um kind of special at the time she she at the age of 18 she works for the next eight years as a servant for this family um doing hard labor on a farm which like kudos because i can't even imagine she worked um 
she would work all day and then the area is getting really political, right? So there's all these like free pamphlets mm-hmm. getting passed around to like spread the word, you know, like Thomas Paine and all that stuff or like lecture or um, letters on independence and stuff. So she's teaching herself to read at night, which is a no-no at the time, but she hid it from everyone. So this teenager who's like plowing fields is then also self-educating so that by the time she is of age at 18 and her um, indenture is complete, she gets a job as like a teacher during the summer. And then she also works as a weaver in the winter. So she's able to like provide a living for herself with these skills that she's accrued. Mm -hmm. She's also kind of interesting looking for the time. And I don't want to dwell too much on this, but like she, the average height that I saw was around like 5'5 five, five or 5'6 five, for most people. That's why George Washington was such a thing because he was like 6 foot and everyone was like, whoa. <laughs> Can you imagine being the only 6 foot person in a room of 5'5s? Five, you know what I mean? You gotta be like... Mm-hmm. Of course, he was like the leader. Um, But she was 5'8 and a woman and like super strong because the plowing, you know what I mean? So yeah. she's, she's kind of this statuesque woman of the time. Um, that'll come into play later. So, <clears throat> 1776, you know what happens. It's a pretty big year. Pretty big year. That's when she's 16. So, like, by the time she's 18, the revolution's underway. And she's looking around, and she's like, mm, I don't know if teaching and weaving is my jam. I would like to help. I can make pants. I'm going to make my own pants. <laughs> This is a hearsay. This is how I went. She's like, I'm going to make my own britches and my own jacket, and I'm going to get a musket, and I'm going to I'm gonna join up. But oh, Deborah, women aren't allowed to join. And she's like, yeah, but if I wear pants, they won't know, and I would like to help my country. And like... So really, it's the, the, it's the, the pants that are the key thing here. I mean, I just think it's fun that she was like, I want to do that. I'm going to make my own outfit. Because I don't know how many of the like counterparts that she had as a soldier were would do the same thing, or if they got that made for them. Mm-hmm. Fair. Just saying, she brought a lot of skills to the company, but you know, <laughs> being gendered what it was then, like she can't tell anybody. So we have like a Mulan situation where she's mm-hmm. like, "I must go fight. No one can know." The ruse begins of trying to keep her gender a secret because we're all very fragile. At this time with gender. So she she leaves her farm. She walks 30 miles to enlist with her like self-made soldier outfit. And she joins Captain George Webb's infantry company, 4th Regiment, Massachusetts Continental Line, under the name of Robert Shirtliff. And I've heard that she made this name up, but I've also heard it was based on a brother of her who had died. Mm. So either way, there's like... She has this identity now as Robert. Um, she now has to do the wonderful task that her fellow soldiers didn't have to do of both fighting at a level or like doing all the training, doing all the fighting, and then also having to participate in like concealment at all times for fear of her fellow soldiers, her like her the leadership, like what would happen to a woman at this time is a little murky from what I found, but like on one source somebody was like, the worst that could happen to her was death. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, maybe I don't know that for sure. Cause I don't think there's a lot of cases where I could cite that. But 
I'm sure they wouldn't have been very kind to her, especially at the beginning when there's no connection yet. Yeah. So she has to kind of lay low, um, keep to her, keep to herself in a lot of ways. Um, she apparently like had gotten part of her uniform from somewhere else so that she could match her fellow soldiers. And so she takes out her needle and thread and starts like altering it because her body is shaped differently. Um, Mm, but she's mm. altering it and everybody's looking at her like, you're really good at sewing, Bob. What's that about? And she's like, "Ah, Oh, this, I'm just, I know what, uh, yeah, weird. And Mm -hmm. she apparently tried to explain it like, yeah, there's no girls in my family we were all boys. So we had to learn how to do it ourselves. And her, her buddies were like, Oh, okay. That's cool. Yeah. Great. You go, Bob. That checks out. Um, Apparently, she also, like, got a nickname from all of the men because she didn't have to shave. So there's also an element of, like, how dumb were these people? But, like, that's how crazy it would have been to an average person to have a woman in the army. So, like, they see this person who's, like, really good at sewing. And, hmm, Bob never has to shave. But, I mean, some guys don't have to shave. So, like, we're going to let that go. And, you know, you know what I mean? It's, like... How much do we want to see and how much do we not want to see? Yeah, I don't. it's just kind of mind-boggling to think of, like, the amount of work involved in uh-huh. that. Yeah, it's like whether or she could have just been Deborah and we could have all been fine with it, but no. Um, she gets into her first battle, and uh, I could tell you what happened, but basically they're around uh, New York City. Uh, the British is occupying New York, and so there's different little skirmishes that are happening between pockets of rebels at the time, or Continental Army and the British. Um, so she fights in her first battle, and she gets a wound across the left side of her head from a saber, because we still have swords at this time, which I don't think about. You think about, like, bayonets, maybe, and, like, muskets, but I never think of, like, big old swords. But those guys on s- horses, you know, mm-hmm. they're always... Those were practical, and they got her in the head. Um, Ouch. So this is her first kind of medical predicament where she's like, "Mm, I have a gaping wound on my head. Head wounds bleed real good. Uh, I can't go to a doctor, so I'm going to deal with this myself. And so she, like, walks it off and tends to it herself and all of her. And coincidentally, gets a lot of, like, oh, dang, Deborah, from, like, her soldier (laughs) friends that are like... Robert's hardcore. Um, She's in another skirmish really soon after that. And then this is where, okay, this is the part where it gets a little gross. So if you don't like uh, wound chat, then maybe just skip ahead a little bit. Just, Just warning you. So she gets hit in the thigh by a musket ball. So musket balls, they're like little round pellets. Like they're, you know, you know what they look like. Mm-hmm. Um, She gets hit in the leg by them. Some say some sources say one, some sources say twice in the leg, and one would argue that for a concealed soldier who doesn't want her gender revealed, that a leg wound is probably one of the worst places to get some get hurt because the immediate treatment of it is going to cause some problems, um, especially by predominantly male doctors. Yep. Um, if not her fellow soldiers, so she's like, oh crap. Um, she 
had a, a lesser wound somewhere else. So they take her to the hospital. The surgeon looks at the lesser wound. She's like, cool, thanks. And then she boogies and doesn't really engage with him about the leg. She finds a private area and then she tries to... <sighs> she digs the musket ball out herself oh my with God. her pen knife. And apparently it takes her like three tries. Ah! like And she succeeds. Oh my... Oh, and like... I have mm-hmm. trouble, like, pulling a splinter out of my hand. Yeah, no, not a splinter. And also, like, depending on where... Hopefully, it's, like, I assume it's on the outer side of her thigh, because, like, you got arteries and stuff on this side, yeah. you know? That, like, you don't want to so, mess with anyway. That. But, I mean, that's how seriously she's taking this, like, concealment, because, like, her options are so limited. So, uh, yeah, she... There's, yeah, I keep hearing, like, with the wounds that she received, I've heard somewhere, like, she clearly is not a talented surgeon at this time, so she either screwed her leg up, or she was only able to get part of it out or didn't succeed fully, and, like, basically this causes her issue for the rest of her life, this injury. Mm -hmm. Um, But she doesn't let it stop her. She goes back into service. And um, this next story is, like, the bananas one. So more skirmishes are happening. She and her friend, one of her fellow soldiers, he gets wounded or ill, taken ill. And so they find themselves at this house of this local man. And they're like, hey, will you please let us stay here so we can recuperate to then get back to our regiment? And he's like, yes, please come on in. And then he puts them in like a room that then locks them in. And they're basically like, what the hell is going on? And then they slowly over their stay at this house, which was like a couple days, if not weeks, they realize that they wandered into a loyalist home. So like, oh, no. not only are the British soldiers their problem, like the people that are loyal to the British are also a problem for these soldiers. So she's trying to nurse her friend back to health. He's not doing very well. This guy's being a total jerk and not providing them any kind of help. They don't really get food or water from him or any kind of care. So she's sort of, like, fighting a uphill battle. Um, his daughter, the the guy that owns the house daughter, ends up feeling sympathetic towards them and helps them with food and water and stuff and helps and um, tries to get them as much assistance as she can as a young woman at this time, which isn't a lot. Um, but eventually, unfortunately, her fellow soldier passes away. But Deborah's like, oh, I'm not standing for this. So she escapes the loyalist house with the help of the daughter, goes, finds her regiment. They regroup. She's like, let's go get him for Timmy or whatever that guy's name was. Snow, I think was his last name. Mm. They come back to the loyalist house. They shoot their guns off outside. The loyalist who is having a party with his uh, jerk friends all come out and they get captured by her regiment and taken to wherever you take those guys. I don't know, probably a prisoner war camp of some kind. And um, she said later that she was always really proud that they didn't have to, like, hurt anybody else. They could just, like, capture and, like, show that they're, you know, mm-hmm. above such things. But that was, like, a big... She kind of coordinated all that. The fact she escaped while wounded, escaped, and, like, got her fellow troops to come back, didn't have to kill anybody. It was great. It's not a bad day's work. And also... Before she left, she had buried her friend. So, like, she did... Like, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot. Of, like, like, I'm gonna... I have to flee this place, but, like, I'm gonna take the time to still treat my friend as a person and, like, make sure they have a burial. Um, 
She's transferred to Philadelphia. She's assigned to John General John Patterson. Um, but she's quickly taken ill with, uh, they think, malaria, which is, like, at the time a horrible disease and still is a horrible disease, but um, would run rampant through camps of soldiers. So she gets a severe fever, and that fever kind of makes her go in and out of consciousness. So all of a sudden, all of this agency she had over protecting her identity she no longer has Mm -hmm. and she's very ill so she's taken to a doctor she's sort of out of it she can't consent she can't really provide any like oh no oh no so she then is um nursed back to health by this doctor he has to he discovers her identity he understands like what's going on now she wakes up she's freaking out at this point, she has accrued such a reputation, and the doctor was, by all coincidences, a good person. So he's like, okay, we Shocking. have to. Well, he's like, he's not going to, like, throw her out and be like, yeah, tramp, None of that happens. So he writes a letter. He, um, he, he, he has to notify his superiors because he's still bound by his code of warped ethics about gender at this time. So he sends a letter to Patterson and Henry Knox, who's like, there's a lot of generals all in bump. So eventually they or they or um, one of the options would be to just kick her out. Right. But as I said, her reputation preceded her. So they decide to give her an honorable discharge. Hmm. So they treat her as a soldier from the time that they learn about her gender. They continue to treat her as a soldier. And they're like, you know, this is a rule. We cannot have you. And you've been, you know, you've taken ill and stuff, so we are going to honorably discharge you. Um, and, uh, do, 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 She had served for a year and a half at this time. And then I don't know, I don't know what you know about honorable discharge at this time, but there's this one section of, uh, Sources that said letters of te- letters of testimony to her gallantry in combat were presented for her by General William Shepard in or around her hmm. discharge. So I don't know if that's part of like what she needed to get her discharge achieved or was the kind of an extra thing they did for her. I'm a little unclear on that. But clearly like her friendship and camaraderie with her fellow people was well observed. Um she gets a dress given to her by General Patterson's wife so she can go home in proper attire because that's what we're worried about. Yep, can't be the, um, no pants, no pants allowed. And she apparently like stands um, with the general watching her regiment leave the area and never really able to tell her friends what happened. So they're probably looking up at her being like, who is that lady? I don't understand. She kind of looks like Bob. Okay, moving on. <laughs> um she then apparently, like, she walks home to Massachusetts from, what did I say, Philadelphia. So, no big deal. Uh, I'm sure she had some great boots. Um, and then we kind of lose track of her for a little bit. But in 1785, she marries Benjamin Gannett, who's a farmer in Massachusetts, and they have three kids and a little farm together. Which, like, how I do look. Get the whole thing, girl. You can have it all, sort of 1785 style. Um <laughs> Paul Revere knows about her, and as she gets older, she has these kids, her leg is still bothering her. He's like, you're kind of this amazing American spirit. People would love to hear from you. Um, 
that we like this nostalgia of our of our victory over the British, you should go on speaking tours. So she's like, yeah, I can do that. So she starts to lecture all around New England and tell stories about her wartime experience, both as a woman and just as an American. And um, they think this maybe makes her one of the first women lecturers, one of the first American women lecturers. Uh, mm. She apparently gets a little theatrical and she... <laughs> She at the uh, she delivered a set of speeches about her experience, and at the conclusion, she would leave the stage, put on her regimentals, and demonstrate her use of arms. So, like, she gave them like a story and a show. Do you know what I mean? It's like just in case you didn't believe me, watch me shoot this rifle. You know That's what I mean? Fascinating. And Does- the audiences loved it. Really? Okay. I loved her. Yeah, yeah, that would be my question. I was like, what what kind of response is this? I'm sure at the time there were some jerks in the audience trying to see a freak show or what they perceived as a freak show. But I think the, like, colonial fervor, the, like, excitement of what she was... She, was, she had some victories over British forces. So it was kind of well-received, and she got a little living that way. Um, but she did have to then apply for a pension. Um, and because, well, you couldn't get a pension because women weren't allowed in the army. So like, there's no kind of whatever documentation you need because they would see it and be like, no, you're a lady. No, what? No ladies in the army. No, we don't understand this. (laughs) And so she kind of had to be like, yes, I was a lady. I'm a little weird. I served for a year and a half. I got wounded multiple times and my leg is still screwed up. Look at this saber slash across my head, like a hard... Core I am. Um, but by 1805, she did, she was able to receive a pension. I think it's the first time a woman received a medical pen or um, a pension from the military as an American soldier, not as like the wife of an American soldier or the relative of. Um, they gave her four dollars a month in 1805. Oh How much is that today? Eighty-five dollars a month. So not great, but not too bad. Better than nothing. Yeah. Um, primarily because of the like injury that was st- starting to debilitate her kind of movement. And as a farmer, you don't have a leg, you don't really have a life. So by 1818, uh, her pension was doubled. So they took care of her. Uh, she passed away in Sharon, Massachusetts, which is where her husband was from. And her tombstone says, Deborah, wife of Benjamin Gannett, died April 29th, 1827, 68 years. But on the reverse side of the stone, it reads, Deborah Sampson Gannett, comma, Robert Shirtliff, comma, the female soldier service, 1781 to 1783. And the Daughters of the American Revolution put a plaque in her memory detailing more of her story near her. Very cool. Gravestone. So that's Deborah Sampson or Robert Shirtliff. Fascinating. Yeah, I've done colonial ladies before, but that was that one is um, the first woman to receive. I think the first woman to receive to enlist. In, I think they cite her as enlisting in the army, receiving wounded, first wounded female soldier in American history, and then to receive a pension. It's an impressive. So she kind of there. is the yeah, and then we take a long break. Where people aren't allowed to do that. But I'm sure there's some, in every war that we fought, there's some lady in there going like, yeah, I want to do this. I want to participate in this way. I don't want to participate in the way everyone wants me to. I want to participate in the way I want to. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, though, that she was able to do that 
and sort of like assume a male identity for a while and then just sort of it seems like seamlessly go back to being yeah i don't think there was any kind of i think that was the avenue she had to take in order to do the things she wanted to do like i think she would have stayed i don't know i don't know her but yeah it's She's like, I got to put on pants and go be Robert to do this thing I want to do. But I'm also willing to, like, leave it and be Deborah again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that's yeah. my only avenue to achieve those things. And the fact that all the people, like, from what I could tell, no one was, like, I'm sure there were people that were freaked out about it. But that's definitely not what's documented. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's no yeah. stories of that aspect of it. She's so... She was apparently treated very fairly, maybe because she looks so hardcore. She's digging bullets out of her leg. But like, Yeah, that's a little bit of street cred there. You would hope. Or like, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I yeah, wouldn't want to mess with her. And she's probably taller than most of them, too, which is a whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, I'm surprised by that response. If only yeah. because, like, the contemporary response from a certain segment of the American population about women serving in combat is so negative that, like, to find... But what will the men do, Michael? They'll how be will so the men distracted? The men will be so distracted. What? How do? How do we spare them that? How will they ever ever be able to overcome such a distraction? It's not safe. <laughs> yes. It sounds like you guys need some some help with that. I guess. Um. Yeah. How about that? Never mind the fact that she was able to serve her country with the utter distraction of, like, having to conceal herself at all times. So one can be a soldier and be distracted. Yeah. Maybe one could say. (laughs) Maybe one could say, like, you should try and figure that out on your own. Like, that's not. Yeah. I was having a conversation with my friend the other day, and we were talking about something where something having to do with, like, dress codes or whatever and just this whole kind of commentary that young women are having now with dress codes and being like me being a distraction for you is not necessarily my problem yeah that's your problem you figure that out i'm wearing clothes i'm here i'm i should be able to exist in this space and if you have a problem with it you got to figure that out and it's not to the detriment of me Mm -hmm. and i know there's like some issues with a blanket statement like that but at the same time for so long it's been like up to one side to make adjustments yeah that just get over it you know what i mean just let them wear trousers just let them wear pants it's all about the pants 18th century multi-button i'm sure trousers Mm Hmm. which like oh god and she was in there for a year and a half so if we could just talk about it for a minute having your period in the 18th century in a military camp? Can we talk about it? How did she do it? I How did she do I, it? I want to know. That's so, that's the like, not that that's, that's the stuff the that thing, I care but... about where I'm like, how did you, A, find all the time to go to the bathroom whenever you needed to? Like, what'd you do? Because you'd have to leave all the time, which I guess everybody did. But at the same time, guys have an easier time peeing. Let's be real. In a wooded scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you're trying to show that you're not a woman. So you'd have to leave. Find a separate area. Do your business. But then you have like a more complicated issue of like once a month for a range of days. Good luck to you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh my God. 
Not a fan. No. So the fact that she's like doing all that and That's, still like yeah, the, and the 18th and century names. generals can't talk about that. But there has to be some element of like, dang, that's hard. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, these are the things I think about. When <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Phenomenal. So that's Deborah Sampson. Why, thank you. Thank you. Ready to be back? Yeah. Great. Ready, Freddy. So. We talk about a lot of firsts here on Missing History, and most mm-hmm. of those firsts are really exciting. Like, first woman to serve in an American army, uh, first woman in space, first woman elected to Congress. Uh, the first I've got this week is maybe less exciting. Way to sell it, Michael. I know. Well, I should say maybe it is equally exciting. It is perhaps not as happy and uplifting. Yeah, you like those. I really do. Uh, I like a downer. A little bit. Uh, okay. In this case, this is a, a listener suggestion um, from one of my history professors, actually. Oh, um, cool. And I'm going to... It's a French lady, so apologies in advance. I will be butchering all of the names. Um, but her name is Marguerite Porret. Mm-hmm. She is born sometime in the 13th century because it's the Whoa. 13th century we're a little unclear when but we're gonna we're gonna take it back you want to talk about a century i don't want to be born into anything prior to like well to 20th, now but really but like yeah the lower you get the less it's exciting yeah no it's boy. okay uh but she's born into an upper class family probably sometime in like the mid to late 1200s so as things go for the 13th century, she's got it pretty well. Um, she lives in uh, one of the French-speaking regions of the Holy Roman Empire in what is today Belgium. Um, but most of what we know about her is going to come from a trial conducted in 1310. Uh, and... I don't like the sound of that at all. No, and I think just to like to get it out there so that we're not like waiting. Uh, the first that she gets to claim is that she is the first person we have a record of who is burned at the stake for heresy in Paris. Oh, I thought you were going to say witch. I guess same diff, right? It's a, it's a, on the same continuum. Um, she's, I mean, okay. problematic, problematic woman who gets burned. What'd she do? <coughs> Excuse Bless me. You. Uh, well, let's talk about it. Okay. Um, so at some point in the late 1200s, she becomes active in a religious movement uh, called the Begoins. Begoins. Um, it is a movement of lay women, so women who are not professing formal religious vows who are gathering together in urban areas for lives of prayer and service, uh, living sort of in communities, but not with sort of the same official rules that like a group of nuns living in a monastery would be under. Mm-hmm. In a way, they're sort of modeling their lifestyle off of the mendicant friars, like the Franciscans or the Dominicans, who are doing a lot of work in the growing urban areas in Europe at this time. 
But of course, there are like two big differences. First of all, they're women. And if we know anything about medieval European religious structures, that's going to be a big problem. Um, mm-hmm. And then the second problem is that they, because they don't take religious vows, they don't really have a formal place in the structure of the church. And mm-hmm. again, medieval Europeans love their structure. And if things don't fit really nicely, they're going to have some problems. Yeah. Um, I have to sneeze now, too. Hold on. <laughs> nope, I'm good. Okay. okay. Um, so the first issue, um, sort of the like broad gender problem, which is that they're not living the like approved version of being religious women, which is like joining a monastery, becoming a nun, living cloistered. Nun or bust, if you will. Basically. And that of course is like very scary because you're like, oh, there are these women and they are doing these things and there's no men involved like controlling them basically how will they know what to do michael exactly we don't know they're just they don't have dads or husbands to tell them what to do um and of course that that leads in the second issue which is that since they're not professing formal vows they don't fit neatly into the church hierarchy like they don't owe obedience to like a particular bishop but they are like living in community and some of them including marguerite are very educated and so in addition to working with the poor they're also writing what are in effect theological books i know Uh-oh. right um and if, yeah not good no if there's one thing Does that's going to get well you for them. in trouble in the 13th century it's getting into theology um or just reading not good <laughs> you're gonna have more thoughts up in their head yeah and we can't have that mm-hmm. um and the the sort of secondary problem to this whole women writing thing is that oftentimes they're writing in vernacular languages, so French or German, um, rather than Latin, which both like puts them outside of the formal academic world that's happening, but also makes their work accessible to people who are not members of the clergy. It's definitely still like a small group, like you don't have a whole lot of literacy at this point, but for people who are able to read and can't read Latin, the stuff they're writing would be accessible to them in a way that makes it a lot more difficult to sort of control the conversations that they're having. Not good. No. Um, but they don't, but also, like, they don't see it as control, right? Do they? It's, Do you know what I mean? That's the other thing I wonder, where there's, like, big patriarchal kind of systems in place. Like, mm-hmm. I always, I think the tendency is never, like, the one that is the effect. Like, the the, co- the reason for doing the thing is never the actual result. Does that make sense? Like, totally. It's always, like, we want to protect you and we want to keep you safe, which is a very sweet idea, but all that does is just make a cage. Or, you know, I don't really have one for reading because I can't quite understand what the logic is of, like, we have to control these books. These books aren't going to help anybody, but maybe it is, like, the weird fundamental thinking of, like, poor people are dumb because of this and like they can't be exposed to like the the idea of betterment is not a thing so therefore it's wasted time and effort do you know what i mean you're doing all this stuff for no result because these people won't be able to read it anyway what are you you're wasting all of this potential you know that kind of yeah thing like you can't help them help themselves they're blah 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 whatever elitist nonsense you have do you know what i mean it's like 
And I think in at least that's in like, the warpedness of this kind of system. Yeah, and at least in the medieval period, there is I think this like really legitimate concern for people's souls, and that at least on some level, people are concerned that like if you read the wrong things or you think the wrong things yeah. or you learn the wrong things or you behave the wrong way, like that is your eternal soul headed off to damnation. And if we can do something or, to yeah. solve that or mm-hmm. like help keep you safe from those problems, then like we are doing a good thing for you. Or modern day version is just like everybody has equal footing on the internet, right? So you can read uh, a Nobel laureate's stuff just as easily as you could read some fundamentalist idiot stuff, and they are presented as equally right and true. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, if you want to be the truth police of even on a religious level at that time, where it is generally the stakes are high because you could be sending someone to hell if they read the wrong thing, then you would want to keep the learning very close to the best. Where it's like, we have the answers. If you look away from here, you will be damned forever. And like, once again, while skewed and wrong, and the result of controlling education is problematic, like, it starts from this place of like, oh, I can understand why you would care in that way yeah your Uh, path to solution is not the right one but you know hindsight's 2020 exactly uh and in particular the that actually that whole dynamic is going to be what plays out for marguerite and what gets her in trouble in a way is that there is this movement that the church is going to define as a heresy sort of however you want to take that um wherein people are in a way like at least according to the church making the wrong choices reading the wrong things believing the wrong things and thus endangering their souls Mm -hmm. um in the 13th century this is going to come to be called the free spirits or the brethren of the free spirits movement um and sort of like the problem with looking at heresy is oftentimes the only things that survive are the records of the people persecuting heresies Mm -hmm. so we don't necessarily know like who belonged to this how like organized of a system of thought it was what did they actually believe but we at least have a bit of a sense based on like what the church was condemning them for um Mm -hmm. that they believe that uh it's possible to achieve like a state of perfection on earth and that the soul of a perfected person and god or indistinguishable so that like is a the, they like i think the objectionable point there is that like the medieval church doesn't think it's possible to become perfect on earth and that there has to be a separation between the like fallenness of the human soul and the perfection of god so but that's yeah. problem number one uh problem number two they deny the necessity of the church and the sacraments for salvation uh-oh. Church is never a fan of that. Not good. Not. You got to do the sacraments. Yep. Uh, Still. They got to keep you coming back. And this is where they get their name, um, Free Spirits, because their focus was sort of more on the work of the Holy Spirit and this personal relationship with God. Uh, in a way, you could almost think of it as a bit of like anticipating the personal relationship with God that Protestantism is going to bring up in a couple of centuries. Um, and then, at least for my view, the, the funniest thing that they get in trouble for is they use erotic language to talk about their union with the divine, which, like... Girl, <laughs> chill. 
not the time period. <laughs> no, not the time period for that. No, but that is, I mean, it's a funny thing to get upset about because at least the what I know about mysticism, like so many mystic traditions are like so deeply tied to that kind of language and that yeah. set of imagery. Uh, but of course, women having an erotic relationship with God. Whoa. No. Whoa. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no. You don't have those feelings. Mm-mm. No, no. Can't uh, engage. <laughs> shut it down. Right. Get married. Just shut it down. Go to the convent. Only two options. Yeah. Married uh, babies. Come on. Or go be a nun. Mm-hmm. What a dream. Okay. Okay. So these, these two things. So these communities of religious women out of the control of the church and this heresy about a sort of deep personal relationship with God mm-hmm. come together almost kind of perfectly and in an interesting but not great way for Marguerite uh, when she writes a book in the 1290s called Mirror of Simple Souls, which mm-hmm. in it she lays out a sort of model for a relationship with God that, and this is where things get a little bit problematic to pin down, like whether or not she is part of this free spirits movement, but a lot of the language and a lot of the ideas in this book align with the things that the free spirit movement talks about. In particular, it's structured around the seven stages of annihilation that the soul goes through as it as it joins in the oneness with God, which this like the separating of boundaries between the human soul and the divine is one of the essential things that the free spirits are talking about. That we about. call annihilation? Yeah, it's this weird... I mean, at least for, like, a modern Catholic con- conception of, like, how to imagine a relationship with the divine. But the the basic premise of it is that, like, your... The, like, individual sinfulness of your soul falls away, is annihilated, and you, the, like, divine part of your soul rejoins with God. Okay. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It... It's it's fascinating because like it it's seems okay. like both like kind of like picking fighting big battles over small things in a way, but mm. that is a lot of what like medieval theology is about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's apparently so what like, was their take on it, the free spirits. So they, I mean, there that is in a way sort of a version of talking about their belief is that like through some process you can perfect your soul, free it from sin, and thus join with God before you die. Oh. And it's the before you die part that I think is really the big thing. Because, like, So they're, a like, lot of, Buddhists, right? Almost, like, in a, like, in a way, there's a lot of similarity. God to Nirvana in this case. Um, yeah. And so that, oh like, doesn't... Hippies don't do well. Not in, in Europe medieval in the 13th century, twelfth century, what century? Thirteenth century, twelve hundreds. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it is apparently like a beautifully written book. It's a combination of prose and poetry, um, and it's primarily focused on the importance of love in a relationship with God. So, like, a lot you can get behind, and at the very least, it's like a very enjoyable read. Um, and of course, she's writing in French, not in Latin. Uh, yeah, so that's this a big is, deal. This is going to get her in trouble. Pre-printing the, press. That's a big deal. Isn't he 1300? Yeah. 
I think so. It's yeah, it's definitely it's still being circulated in manuscript. Um, mm-hmm. And the other thing is that she doesn't use sort of the similar rhetorical strategies that other female mystics of the time are using. So, oh. like Hildegard, for example, uh, from girl. way back when. Von one of Biggin, what was it? Biggin, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, her the like the rhetorical strategy that she uses when talking about her writings is that she has these visions, these divinely inspired visions, and that's where she gets her ideas. And so it's not that like she as a woman has these independent ideas, it's that she has a relationship with God and that's how she gets these ideas. So in a way, she's not challenging any sort of patriarchal structures around knowledge and who has the ability to talk about things. It's Mm -hmm. like, it's not me, I'm just the conduit for it. but Marguerite is making no such assertion. She's just like, no, like, these are my ideas, and I think they're right, and so I'm going to write them, um, which is, like, a big power move, especially mm-hmm. for a woman who is not, like, a formally professed member of a religious order. She, like, she's just like, no, I'm smart, and I'm going to write this. Mm-hmm. And that is her whole claim to authority. Oh, boy. Yeah. So uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, this does not go well for her. Uh, Somewhere between 1296 and 1306, uh, the Bishop of Cambrai condemns her book and orders it publicly burned in her presence. You can just imagine like a big middle finger to her. Smith. So he orders her to stop writing, publishing, distributing any material similar to the content of her book. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the fact that we're talking about her now suggests that maybe she didn't listen to him. I would hope not. Yeah, no, that's a big, that's a big no. Um, what are her options? So her options are really like, don't do it, stop, and then Become like a nun. things will be okay, <laughs> or yeah. keep doing it and risk getting in trouble again. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's gonna choose option two, mm-hmm. um, and in 1306 she's caught circulating the book to a number of prominent theologians. Um, she was hoping to get their approval so that she would be allowed to openly write and talk about it again. Um, mm-hmm. The new Bishop of Cambry reports her to the Inquisition, like you do, um, and eventually her case is going to land before uh, William of Paris, who's the Inquisitor in France, uh, mm-hmm. sometime in the fall of 1308. Mm. Um, now, William, uh, like, quick sidebar into medieval politics has just finished uh, a number of trials of the Knights Templar, who the French monarchy are in the process of destroying, arresting, and confiscating all of their stuff. Um, And he, like, kind of messes up a little bit, so he's looking to sort of rebuild his reputation in a way, and takes a look at Marguerite's case and is like, I think I can make something out of this. Um, Mm -hmm. And the problem for her is that in, in the legal system of the time as a heretic you get tried and then if you agree that what you did is wrong and sort of seek for forgiveness and all of that you're allowed to keep doing like going on with your life like you can't be a heretic anymore but you're fine we're like we're not going to burn you at the stake or anything Mm -hmm. but if you relapse or if you like keep being a heretic then the church would be like "Mm, no we're not having any of that and Uh-oh. then the like burning at the stake or the execution part comes because you are damaging your immortal soul by being a heretic. And so the best thing we can do for you is like kill you. So that way you're, we're like limiting the damage. 
Cool, that checks out. Right, yeah. like, just mm-hmm. point A to point B. Um, yeah. And so William Logic. is going to take up her case and basically is shooting for the death penalty in part to reclaim his reputation, but in part because as a relapsed heretic, he's worried about her soul or something. Um, so he's going to submit her work to a group of canon lawyers at the University of Paris who look over her writing and say, yes, this is heretical, and yes, she has violated the terms of her earlier agreement by trying to redistribute the book again. Mm-hmm. Um, she completely refuses to participate in her trial, um, so she refuses to take the oath required by the Inquisition in order for her to testify, um, and so she gets found guilty without mounting any kind of defense. And they're annoyed about this, but it doesn't stop them from trying and convicting her. Um, and there's this, in sort of classic medieval chronically style quote about her um, that says, um, she was suspected of heresy, remained disobedient and rebellious, not wanting to respond to questions nor swear an oath before the Inquisitor concerning those matters. And just sort of love like disobedient and rebellious is her her two little descriptors I'm there. Sure, they responded too well. Yeah, they are uh, big fans of uh, rebellious to authority, just like mm-hmm. peak Middle Ages. Um, so she's tried, she's convicted. Um, she gets handed over to the city of Paris to get executed, um, and on June first, thirteen ten, she is burnt publicly burned at the stake Whoa. at a square in Paris. Um, and a, there's a 19th century historian who points to her as being the first person sort of officially burned at the stake for heresy in the mm-hmm. city. Um, mm-hmm. But her book... What a way to go. I mean, if you're you know? if you're going to get executed by the state for what you believe in, it's the way to go out, I guess. Is it? I mean, not like good, but she apparently made a... so terrible. Yeah, but she made an apparently like, for whatever this is worth, like a good impression on the people who were killing her. Like, impressed them with her like calm and all of the stoic, stoic nature, Joan of Arcian vibe. Yeah, but you know, still burned her. Who came up with that idea? Like, why? Why flame? I'm sure there's some like theological backing. Who gets the treat of being the guy that came up with that? As the punishment. I don't know, but probably not something that's on his LinkedIn page. Well, it's something of, like, you're going to hell, let's get you started, right? It's got to be I would that. imagine so. Or maybe, like, right? the, like, cleansing like, power of fire. Mm. We can... I can try to find something. We'll put in the show notes. Um, so she gets executed, but her book sort of has a second life in a way after she's dead. Um, yeah, you do that with martyrs, you know? A little bit. And you get them a little more vibe. Yeah, yeah the, all of a sudden. the really interesting thing is that her, so the book is going to get translated into a couple of other languages and circulates pretty widely in Europe for a couple of hundred years, but without her name attached to it. So, like, it becomes this sort of anonymous thing. So fragile. And because it's anonymous and not written by a woman, it is much more widely accepted. Um, And there are even 
sort of some theological places or some like universities or theological circles where it in a way becomes canon in terms of like ways to think about a relationship with God. So it goes from like burnt to the stake for it to like, no, this is chill pretty quickly in the scheme of things. Uh, but of course not as her work. Um, and it's not until 1946 that she's sort of again widely acknowledged as the person who's written this text. Um, they're also going to use some excerpts from her book to condemn the free spirit movement as heretical in the Council of Vienne in 1311, which is where mm-hmm. we get sort of the information we have about the free spirit movement. So is, you know, making, especially for a woman who's not formally a member of a religious community, makes a pretty big impact on the religious life of Europe at the time, even if it is by being executed by the state for heresy. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, I know it's a big, it's a big upper. Wah, wah. So wait, does her book exist now? It does. You can get it on Amazon. Amazon, you said. Amazon, yeah. Huh. Um, is, is it a page turner? Did you read it? I did not. Read, How long is it? I did not read any of it. Um, it is there an audiobook version? <laughs> I would imagine we could make that happen. The The thing I'm intrigued about and want to go dig a little bit differently is that it is this mix of genres. Like there is poetry in it. There's prose. Oh. It's sort of like a mystical, but also like theological text. And so I'm curious. I mean, obviously can't read the old French original, um, but I'm curious like what it reads like and what the sort of interplay of all those different types of writing is. Mm-hmm. It's amazing it survived. Yeah, um, apparently it gets discovered, like, buried in the Vatican archives, as these things do. They would. Um, We hate this book. Why do you have a copy? Shut up. (laughs) You know, we gotta keep it so we know what we hate. We gotta put it in the the hate file so we know. And then, you know, maybe we'll come around later. Oh, my God. Yeah. Such a Vatican move. Just takes... uh, you know, 600 What's years, it next give or to? take. Next to Galileo's, like, excommunication papers, don't worry about it. Just, like, we like him now. We're allowed to like him now. It's like, ugh. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad they kept it, I guess. Thanks. Yeah. Can... Um, and so she definitely, she falls under the this list of, like, group, this group of medieval women whose lives have become sort of the focus of a lot of, like, feminist scholarship in the last couple of decades as people have done a lot of really cool work to sort of re, re-earth the contributions of women to the intellectual mm-hmm. life of Europe in the Middle Ages. Dang. Yeah. I love that. I wonder I wonder what she would think if she saw that her book was still around. I think she'd have some questions about Amazon, but would probably oh, be pretty like pumped about it. ethical questions? I mean, ethical questions and also... We all should. <laughs> yeah. Like, why don't your employees have health care, but you have $160 billion? What? No, let's not talk about it. <laughs> None of those billions could pay for your employees' health care? None of it? Okay, cool. No, 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 but... Just checking. That being said, I have a Prime account. It's too convenient to say no to, which is a dangerous thing. I know. I just placed an Amazon order yesterday. I know. Well, we've gotten, I think, a nice mix of contemporary politics out of this episode, too. It's hard to be a a person. Yeah. I love it. What a range of people. Yeah. I'm glad we didn't talk about it. That That is a spectrum. Indeed. A spectrum of ladies. I didn't know about yours. Did you know about mine? I did not. Great. I love it. Yeah. 
Cool. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Katie. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History.